0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This is the Gator Nation football
2: podcast powered by Campus Insiders with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio.
3: This place is an insane asylum in this oh, Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
2: Well, 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 that did not go as planned. I'm James D. Virgilio alongside Alan Williams. A beatdown at the hands of Arkansas. We also lost significant players due to injury. Not necessarily the weekend we wanted. However, we do have a great show for you. We're going to start by breaking down just what went wrong. Is there any hope left for this Gator team or is this sort of the end of the season? What should we do to correct some things? We're also going to visit with our Gator guest, Chad Wilson. That's Quincy Wilson's dad, who I think is going to lend some some interesting insights into the current state of the Gator program, the Gator defense, the Gator offense, just what that whole situation is like as a father And then we've got a really great segment with Todd Ellis, the voice of the Gamecocks, former record-breaking quarterback for them, who's going to give tremendous insight on Will Muschamp, his current success there, and their rising star, Jake Bentley, at quarterback. Alan, it seems appropriate that we begin this segment by doing a quick look at the stats of this game because they were really crooked.
4: Yeah, a lot of surprises, a lot of things that we wouldn't have expected coming into the game. And like you said, everything went wrong, so let's look at it from a stats perspective. So let's start at the the quarterback position, which I know everyone is thinking about. Luke Del
2: finished with a 6.9 rating. A 6.9 Not strong. rating. Not strong. Not strong at all. We did accumulate 229 passing yards somehow uh, and a measly 12 rushing yards. And if we go back to last week, we said the most important matchup in the yes. game was our rush offense First, their almost dead last ranked rush defense. That was a shocker. And a complete shocker. Uh, obviously, we hadn't been a strong rushing team, but that was that was really something. And, and it hurt us. We had said the major key to the game was the team that ran the ball better. They ran the ball much better than we did. They amassed 466 yards, um, 140 of which came from one running back. So we struggled to stop the run. The game, statistically, is a little bit miragey. With regards to our own defense, the performance is better than the numbers. But on offense, the, the numbers are right. 1-4-11 on third down. One play run in Arkansas territory up until the midway through the fourth quarter. Uh, just just a bevy of horrible stats. Five first downs heading into the beginning of the fourth quarter. Uh, you could just keep reading them off. It's like a nightmare. Uh, and So everything you saw, of course, is backed up by the statistics. Very little went right. On the flip side of the ball, statistically... Arkansas's offense wasn't probably as good as you thought it was with regard to their numbers. In fact, they had their first six drives; they actually had three first downs. Heading into the fourth quarter, they had twice as many plays as we had, and double the time of possession. Yet the game at that point in time was still a very contested twenty-one to seven, and fourteen points were created from the offense uh, amidst really nothing too spectacular. In fact, I think there's good narratives for why that happened. So this game, to me, truly is a game where the numbers may not be as extreme as they look on one side of the ball, but they were absolutely as extreme as they should have been on our offensive side of the ball. So with that being said, let's let's peel back the onion here and start to figure out just what happened.
4: Yeah, this is difficult autopsy to do because it was a painful game for Gator Nation. I know that there was a ton of frustration coming out of this weekend because I think the narrative that most Gator fans have bought into is that we're on the way up, and so this feels like you get slapped down a little bit. And I want to say from up front, going on the road and losing in an SEC stadium, especially SEC West, that's not a a crime at all. That's almost to be expected. I know you and I both looked at this game at the beginning of the season and circled it as you know, I in my own words, the game I thought we were most likely to lose. If I was going to put money on us losing, it would, it would have been this Arkansas game. And so it's not that the Gators lost. That's a tough place to go play and go and play. I think we got seduced by Arkansas's performance against Auburn the week before. But I think it's the way that the team played is it didn't feel like they really showed up for the game. And I think that's reflected in offensive statistics. The defense gave a good effort, but yeah, it's tough. Let's talk about the offense. What do you think was the real problem here? Was this a coaching error? Was this um, lack of execution? Was this, you know, just being overmatched in order of operations.
2: It was a, it was a quarterback problem. Uh, And then it was an offensive line problem. And then it was a coaching problem, especially what we've learned now knowing that Luke Del Rio apparently got injured early on in the second quarter that compounded the problem. But, but obviously that you can just look at the opening snap of the game on offense. We come out, we're running a four wide set. Um, We have two receivers to the left. They're in, a man zone defense. So really they're in a cover two man. So basically the linebacker that's lined up six yards off the line of scrimmage is going to shift into coverage on, on hike. The pre-snap read should have told Luke that, and he should have simply just thrown the ball to Callaway. Who's his outside receiver on a slant route, which is in fact the proper thing to do and a good play call by the way. Instead, he reads his inside receiver, forces a ball into to Cleveland that gets picked off. It's a pick six,
4: and you're immediately behind. And that was unfortunate. Like, that wasn't an awful throw. It was a misguided attempt. But that's a little bit also unlucky. I mean, most of the time that ball probably gets batted to the ground or maybe caught or something. But to go tip off like two players straight into the hands of a you know, a defensive back running towards the end zone. So, bad decision, horrible outcome. And I think from that moment on, like this team does not play well from behind um, in terms of like trying to generate offense. And so that, that was, a, that was going to be a struggle for us either way. Once that happened and yeah. So let me ask you this about the running game though. Why couldn't we run the ball more? Well, it, we, we can't run the ball because we can't pass
2: the ball. Okay. And that, that's as simple that's as that. Of, it is that simple. That's what the opening is. They played man defense. Most of the game or cover one with one safety they lined up within three to five yards of the line of scrimmage of our receivers. And they dared us to throw the ball. And so on the opening play, we come out in a, in a very easy defense to defeat with the pass, call the proper play by running slants, and throw a pick. Because the quarterback makes the wrong pre-snap read. Now that's a big deal. You think to yourself, well, look, the ball got batted down. and nearly got picked off. But that ball never should have been thrown there. And Luke's played enough to know that as one of the easiest reads you could make pre-snap as a quarterback. They are not making this hard for him. So our offense is built off play action. Well, if, you, if no one thinks you can run the ball well, nobody really cares about your play-action fakes. Your bootleg is gone. Your vertical routes are gone. However, Arkansas is not a very good defense. And from the film, we had receivers running wide open most of this game. There were plenty of options to throw the ball with. But Luke has so regressed as a quarterback, injury or no injury, his footwork, his pocket presence, he's constantly throwing running backwards. He's not stepping into his throws. He doesn't throw on time. And like we've mentioned all year, he hasn't been able to hit windows at all, period, even when he was healthy, and it's just gotten worse. So you start with bad quarterback play. Teams are very confident. They come downhill on you. They have no fear of playing the run really aggressively. You compound that with the fact that we just don't have a good offensive line, which we've said all along. Mm -hmm. We do not have a good offensive line. The way you help an offensive line is you pass the ball effectively to where teams guess what's going on. So we've lost the element of mystery We've lost the ability to block on routine running plays. And coaches can say all they want that, oh, we got dominated line of scrimmage, which we did. But so much of that comes from how your quarterback is reading the field and taking advantage of the plays that are there in front of you. And if a team is going to run primarily man defense and you are not even going to come close to beating them, they're going to feel like it's it's their game to beat you. That's exactly how that – that's a bad, bad defense. And we made them look fantastic
4: all game long. I will say it's tough playing an opponent – Coming off of a bye week, especially at home, and they obviously made a ton of adjustments. I think both schematically and who they were playing personnel wise in what positions. And they were committed to not letting us run the ball, and that's the hard thing. Is I got a lot of texts like, "Why are we not running the ball?" Well, I think we looked at those fronts, you know, committed to stopping the run. We're like, "Well, we need to complete a few easy passes and open this up." But we never got around to being able to run it or pass it. And when you can't do either, you're just dead in the water. And, I mean, there was so many three and outs, so many busted assignments, so many negative plays that the offense was never going to get going. And that was really frustrating to watch. And you felt like if they could just do one thing well, then we would start to see some movement, and Arkansas would open up a little bit. But they just could never turn that corner, and that was really frustrating.
2: Well, and you look at the drive, I think the key drive in the entire game was the drive that, that Luke Del Rio threw the pick on to Callaway. In the end zone. In the end zone. And, and the reason that's the key drive is there were several throws that happened before that drive and also on that drive that illustrated, I thought, the solid play calling by our coaches at that point in time and the terrible execution by the offense, primarily the quarterback missing throws. The drive before, we had missed a wide-open go route to Callaway which you're watching the game on television, the announcers gave it no love, but Callaway had dusted his man in a man matchup down the sideline and Luke overthrew him by about five yards. wasn't even in the ballpark. That is a cupcake touchdown pass at this level. We get nothing out of it. We then have a corner route or a deep in route to um, Swain, which he overthrows him by five yards outside out of bounds. Those are 20, 25 yard plays, touchdown plays that go on the statute that are just eviscerated. They're gone. Then you get a fateful play where the safety's low you get your best receiver matched up on their corner. He crushes them on a post route. That is an easy, easy throw. He leaves it short and left by about 10 yards. Now his shoulders hurt. That's the case. It's a horrible throw. We go to the next level then of coaching and compounding. And the question I want to ask you, Alan, is we'll stop right there. We've seen a lot of bad throws in this game. The game is still 14-7. to If you win this game, you basically have won the SEC East. You get a home game against South Carolina. Your team is riding momentum. You feel good. Let's pause right there. Luke Del Rio, we now know, was apparently hurt before that fateful throw to Callaway. And McIlwain said, in hindsight, he should have taken him out. At halftime, he says. Yes. Okay. So let's press the pause button. If you're Luke Del Rio, and you're hurt, and you make that throw, which is obviously a bad throw, do you have any responsibility to go to the sideline and say, hey, coaches,
4: my shoulder's not right. I can't make that throw. That throw was bad because I can't make that throw. This is a really tough thing to answer because what coaches usually like to hear from their players is I'm hurt, but I'm going to gut it out and admitting weakness or injury is often frowned upon. So he's having to battle both his own desires and the culture of football, I think, but I don't know. I, I feel like he, he, the right move would have been to alert the coaches to his injury. It's showing up on the field. I don't know. Do you think it was a selfish move not to say that?
2: I think what you said is the best preface for this, is that the culture of the sport is, is just wrong. I would like to imagine that if I was a coach, I would encourage my players to tell me when they truly had a limiting injury. And coaches like to separate being hurt and being injured. And I would agree with that. You can play hurt. That means you can play through pain, and you're not going to have your performance affected significantly. You cannot play injured. If, if Luke Del Rio has torn his labrum,
4: we come to find out, or hurt his rotator cuff, you just simply cannot play at a high level. Yeah. You're someone who has had a shoulder injury. Could you imagine getting out there and, and throwing? You've been throwing. I watched you throw it for 10 yards after your surgery. I was I mean, going to say, yeah, you, you, you've seen it. You can't do
2: it. You know, I had a slap tear, which is what professional baseball players have. Plenty of football players have had it. And you physically cannot throw the ball even a third of the way you could, but you know that immediately. And so to me, the right culture on any team, and this is not a McIlwain thing. This is like, what well, this is any team is to say, Hey coach, I want the team to win. I am not right. I cannot be delivering these passes on time. And the way that Arkansas was playing us, they are requiring us to throw the ball vertically. So now you really have no shot to deliver the ball. And so to me, I would have liked to have seen that done. I'm not going to say it's selfish. I think technically it is selfish. But like we said, these guys are college kids. They're doing what they're taught to do. I just think that's a, that's a cultural problem. And, and I'm not going to say it cost us the game. But it certainly cost
4: us a shot at putting our best foot forward. And really, this has to be on the coaches. Whether he is hurt or ineffective or something, he wasn't giving us much of a chance to win. And I, I realize that you want to go into halftime and regroup and put it out there. But I think the coaches should have made a change regardless. That's hard to do with the guy who, who you believe in and the team rallies around as your starter. But he's looked off for weeks. Would you have benched him? at halftime, whether he said anything to you or not. I would have
2: benched him after the the throw to Callaway. Because like we said, at that point in time, it had been four throws that were just way off the mark. I mean, when you start to see sub sub-college-level throws being made at this level with a number 11 team in the country something is, is either A, not right, or B, you just can't even tolerate And this it is
4: anymore. not a Treon situation where you have literally nobody
2: else on the roster that you could even play. That's exactly right. You have an experienced guy in an Appleby, and look, if you have to burn a red shirt do it, you're trying to win the SEC Eastern. we're going to talk more about who should play this upcoming week. But, but yes, I would have pulled him. I certainly would have pulled him at halftime, and, and I'm not a believer— and this quarterback is fragile, and you you can't take him out or you'll ruin him. He's a player on the team like everyone else, and I think you want to build toughness amongst your quarterbacks. But your primary goal as the as the strategist of the team is to win the game. And if you see that one of your key cogs is not working, you need to do something to get it working. So certainly at halftime, you had to look at that game and say, okay, it's twenty-one to seven. Really, Arkansas had not done a whole lot at that point in time in the game. In fact, they were really taking advantage of Jared Davis's injury. He couldn't get sideline to sideline and some basic plays we normally stop went for 20, 25 yards. They had about zero downfield passing game. You had to feel okay there, but to not make a change in that scenario... It felt kind of hopeless. It felt hopeless, and I think the team looked hopeless with that, and you've to, you've got to ignite a spark. So I feel like that's two times now
4: this year, tactically, our coaching staff has really, really failed. Yeah, this is tough, and I, I'll, you're talking a little bit about the toughness. I... I do want to say that there is the other extreme where, you know, if I'm going to levy any kind of criticism of the head ball coach of his quick hook of quarterbacks, where, hey, one bad throw and the other, you don't want a guy to be looking over his shoulder every time he makes a bad throw or, you know, makes a bad read or something like that. But this wasn't just a one half of football that he hasn't played well. And hey, this is our guy, and you know we want to stand behind him. Like he had been playing pretty poorly for weeks now, and so. I think you, for the team's sake, you and I think you know you believe the best in Luke as well is that he's not gonna totally crumble by being benched, and if he's a guy who has a you know high character person like people talk about him, he's gonna respond and come back in battle and all those types of things. So it, it's so easy in hindsight, right? Because we know the results of the game that the Gators played really poorly in the second half, and say, like, well, of course you should have made a change. It's, it is hard when the bullets are flying, but that. That seems to be a call they should have made. And I, I am willing to say that I would have benched him somewhere in late second quarter. Maybe if you're like, let's run him out at the beginning of the third quarter. In that first drive, you saw nothing. He's got to come out. So that that's that's troubling for Gator Nation to watch this unfold in a game that was really pivotal for us. I feel like you win this game, you have a ton of momentum coming in. So that that's a challenge. Now one... I'm not going to say benefit, but one difference in
2: McIlwain's press conference was that he admitted for the first time that I have seen that he should have done something. After the Tennessee game, it was like a ho-hum, oh, we ran too many of the same plays, maybe. But there's more going on than you know, which I thought was bogus at the time. This was at least an admission that they probably botched that up. They They should have made a change. They talked about making a change, and they didn't do it. And so, again, this is the second illustration we have now of our of our head coach and the staff not making what I think was the right tactical decision. You're never going to be perfect in these scenarios. Like you said, when the bullets are flying, it's much harder to do it. You also want to believe in your guys and give them a chance to overcome adversity. All of those things are true. But the reason why you're in that position is to make the hard calls to maximize your team's output. Why are you output. getting paid $4 million a year? That's your job. Your job is to make that hard call, to ten- you know, occasionally hurt someone's feelings to get the max output out of them. And it's twice we haven't had it. So... Really, the question now that we need to turn ourselves to is what caused the breakdown, essentially, especially on the defensive side of the ball.
4: Well, I think the simple stat, as you read it out, is the time of possession. Now, they weren't playing lights out in the first half. Arkansas was having more success running the ball than I expected them to, which made them multiple and you know made them be able to like have some passing windows. And we talked about Austin Allen being able to, a guy who can make some throws but this game wasn't getting away from the team overall. Um, I I think the length of time they're on the field exacerbated injuries, exacerbated the, the snaps that our younger players got um, that they were, Arkansas was taking advantage of. And then they, they wore down. I mean, it's simple as that. I mean, we've talked about our depth on the D line, but a lot of those guys are hurting. A lot of those guys, um, you know, left the game at certain points. So, and I don't think they saw the offense doing anything. It's hard as a defensive player. You're supposed to play with intensity and like kind of aggression. It's hard to do that when you don't feel like there's anything behind that. Or there's any point to it. So, ultimately, if I can point to one stat, it would be time of possession. Yeah, we, we talked about the critical importance of that, that Arkansas was
2: the first team we had played that averaged more time of possession than we did. We came in averaging 34. They came in averaging 37. In this game, they had 39 minutes. We had 20. Almost 2-1. to one. Entering the fourth quarter, they had run twice as many plays as we had, uh, roughly. So it's really hard as a defense to overcome that, especially on the road. Like you said, there's no energy or emotion to pick you up. And football is a game of emotion. It's a game of, of passion and fire momentum. Especially on defense. And secondly, Jeff Collins had been on a major roll, and I really hoped we had solved a few things. This was a very poor game from our defense in the secondary. We saw Marcus May get matched up twice with their number one receiver, Drew Morgan, number 80. That's the guy they go to most often by far. Uh, Drew Morgan had his best day this season against the secondary. Um, we also saw Quincy Wilson blow a basic coverage on 2nd and 16. We we saw Arkansas convert 4, I think, 2nd or 3rd and 15-plus down hurt. situations. We saw 2 pass interference calls on 3rd downs that went against us. There was just a lot of really basic breakdowns. It wasn't like they put us in a bad situation basic and poor breakdowns that came from our secondary that were pretty uncharacteristic of us since the Tennessee game. It was unfortunate to see that, and once again, frustrating to see that they get to match up their number one target against our biggest weakness, Marcus May, in pass coverage. I just don't like to see that. You should be better prepared to where you don't have to have Marcus May guarding the guy they want to throw the ball to the most. It's our weakness versus their strength. It happened again. Well, it hurt a, us.
4: It's, again, a benefit of them being on a bye week as they probably looked at what we're doing And said, this is a matchup we can win. Let's create some schematic advantages on certain plays. And we didn't adjust to it. And, yeah, this was the frustrating thing watching our secondary. I don't know. They're – okay, we trust them a lot, especially the corners. We put them in situations where they've got to excel. And when they don't, it looks really bad. So I don't want to just totally pick on them because we're asking them to do a lot, way more than college corners normally do. And here's the other thing. November, Arkansas, Novembert, you know, as they like to call him, they've had a resurgence every November, and I was like, well, maybe not this year. They got a tough schedule. They're not the same physical team. Max said in the press conference, you know, they took it to us physically. So that's just, you know, we need to lay that out there. And that's not necessarily like a schematic thing or, or, hey, our, our guys weren't focused or something. They just got beaten physically. And you know, that happens sometimes with college football players. They're not perfect. They're they're not uh robots out there. And they didn't show up for this game in the way that they needed to. And I don't know, it's tough when so Daniel McMillan dropping an interception in the end zone could have been a major momentum shift. If we score that touchdown to go and tie it up fourteen, fourteen, maybe this game goes way different. This college football is so unpredictable, that's why we love it. But we didn't hit any of those momentum plays. And they did. They took it to us physically, so that that's got to be acknowledged. It just felt a lot like Treon Harris was back playing quarterback,
2: and it felt like the team felt like that. And, and there was a Some mindset scars from that, huh? Yeah, there was a mindset. I think you could really palpably, like you could, you could touch it through your TV screen. It was like. I've seen this before, I know this. The November swoon, maybe they were and, like, it was it, coming alive before them, and it affected them. <laughs> right, I just think it wasn't until you know you open, open the game with a pick six, and I think the team bounced back from that in reality. Like we said, the game was 14-7, and we were driving, and the game was evening out momentum-wise as bad as Luke Del Rio had looked. You would like to think if you get a few sparks there, you get a touchdown, and you get hyped up, you put the pressure on Arkansas. But we just never put the pressure on Arkansas all day, and Yes, it looks in, in the in the rearview mirror like guys were out physicled, but I I rarely buy that even in college football. Emotion plays a big part in it, but normally it's it's a micro emotion. It's what's happening that second in that game. It's what's been happening in the previous weeks. And what have we come on here every week and said? Luke Del Rio has played very poorly and the offense has looked really uninspiring. That takes a toll on your football team. And you can't tell me that if you're one of the 11 defenders, you're not sitting there on the sideline watching a pick six happen, and you're saying, here we go again. I have witnessed this my entire college career as a Gator, and here we go again. It's playing in the back of their minds right now. Yeah, almost And, and to. that's going to be the super important part of what we talk about in the next segment with how do you spark this team if you're Jim McElwain. Because you still have a chance to win an SEC East banner. And even if the SEC East is the worst division in college football, it's still a banner. And you want to steal those when you can. And so there's, there's a big task in front of us. But right now, if our momentum was, was going anywhere, it's just straight down into the ground. Injuries, poor play, a humbling loss on the road to an opponent that, that was down, I guess, if you will, right? Got shellacked by Auburn. It's hard to find a good narrative from this game.
4: Let me ask you, any bright spots from this weekend? <laughs> Probably very few, but anything that you're even mildly encouraged by? Unfortunately, nothing, nothing
2: new. Tabor played well. I thought. I thought that Eddie, obviously, his one opportunity, great field goal that could maybe pay dividends if we can squeak out a game this weekend against South Carolina or anyone else we play that could matter. Outside of that, it's it's hard to find tremendous bright spots. You had Callaway run out of bounds on a punt return. I don't know if he could have stayed in, but it's just like
4: nobody made a play. So, yeah, nobody made a play. That's one of the things there. in this game that I, I thought about it, You know, and this feels like coach speak, so I, I usually veer away from this. But you need your guys to make plays. Whether that's McMillan, you know, tripping and not intercepting the ball, which you know, he's a linebacker, he's not going to make every amazing pick. Callaway staying in bounds, you know, giving us a much needed, you know, offensive play there from our special teams. I I'm struggling to mention anything. Um I wouldn't say anything from offense. You know, the guttiness of some of our defensive players, you know, maybe playing hurt, I don't know. <laughs> didn't really help us, but it's admirable. Uh I mean, can we just say Johnny Townsend every week? You know, our all American punter. <laughs> you know, if you're when your punter's playing the best, this is a lesson from the Must Champ era. You are in a sad state of affairs. So I don't know. It, All around, terrible game. But, you know, I I don't want to be total doom and gloom because guess what? I'm sure Arkansas fans were thinking, you know, we're coming off the worst loss. I think the worst home loss in their history against Auburn. And they came back and won a game against the leading team in the SEC. So, like I said, college football, way up and down, way up and down. So, all is not totally lost. The team is capable of making adjustments. We can talk about that in the second half. But any other quick hitters, any quick thoughts? As I was thinking about a bright spot, the real bright spot for me continues to be that
2: in the past, I was really frustrated with our our play calling. And this year, to a certain extent, I, I'm really sick of the second down and 10 runs that we do. But most of our pass routes make a lot of sense. They're the appropriate pass routes to beat the defense that we're going against. And they typically are like big play pass routes. We are not trying to hit two and three yard pass plays. We're trying to hit 10, 15, 20 yard chunk yards. I asked myself if we had a quarterback that was good, if Will Greer were still here, if someone on that caliber were still there, would we have won the Arkansas game? And the answer to me is absolutely we would have. So this doesn't feel like previous coaches in the past where you think it's Bumble, Jumbo, whatever. But at the same point in time, I'm not going to hang my hat on it and say, hey, it's great. Because we're not not doing it. We don't have the right guy pulling the triggers. I'm obviously still, as everyone knows, really frustrated that Wilger's not here cuz I feel like he should be the quarterback right now given the offense he committed but that's not real. So the bright spot still is though if you get a trigger man back there, I do feel like this team could all of a sudden have a very different identity, much like we saw last year for that six-game spate, like the team, the atmosphere, the Gator fans, like it doesn't take long to hit that. Maybe that can come back, but man, it's hard to feel like that's going to happen this weekend. Week, we asked you to retweet the show in order to win some sweet swag from FanEssentials.net. We chose through our random selector here in the studio Wayne Patterson as our winner. Wayne, we also want to thank you for the weekly retweets on the show. We definitely appreciate the sport and we appreciate the support for all of our listeners out there. In fact, we've reached over thirteen thousand of you now each week, which is incredibly humbling to both Alan and I, as well as exciting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing the show means a lot to us, and we're going to keep giving you chances for the rest of this season to win some swag from fanessentials.net. This week, what we want you to do is head on to our Facebook page, and on this episode show link, drop in the comment section who you think should start this week at quarterback and why, and we're going to choose who we think the best winner uh, is based upon our own special method of reasoning and opinion and maybe even humor, so have some fun with that one. If you're looking to you get some Fan Essentials gear for the holidays, it makes a great gift. You can hop on to fanessentials.net, pick any of your favorite professional franchises, give a gift to friends, family, or yourself. If you use the code Gators, it'll get you 30% off. Joining the show is Chad Wilson, a former Miami Hurricane great, most notably the Gator fans. He is the parent of Quincy Wilson and also Gator Commit Marco Wilson. He coaches at American Heritage and also has an online site called Gridiron Studs, which helps players get recruited. He's a busy man. He is Chad Wilson. Chad, thanks for joining the program.
3: Thanks. I mean, you kick off my introduction with a former Miami Hurricane. I hear hear your listeners booing already.
2: (laughs) Well, I grew up uh, right outside Coral Gables, so I was actually a Miami Hurricane fan for a long time. And in fact, I was uh, at the games when you were there as a kid. So you've got at least oh. one person that can, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm right there with you. So for those that were booing, I still see the you on the helmet and it brings something to me. So you're not totally uh, outnumbered.
3: I see. Did you turn in your hurricane fan card? And if you did, what, what, what caused that?
2: You know, it, it hurt me deeply when Brock Berlin, I was sitting in the student section in Miami when they came back and beat us and we had a 20 point lead on Miami and he did the gator chomp throat slash. That, uh, oh, Lord. yeah, that hurt. That hurt. I still get nostalgic when I see the hurricane helmet though. And I let that be known. I still think it's one of the best uniforms in college football. So it's, I don't know that it's totally gone, but I, I'm obviously as a two-time graduate of UF, I'm, I'm definitely a Gator.
3: <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Good. Good.
4: Well, let me jump in and ask, what is it like be a being a parent watching one of your kids, you know, compete at such a high level?
1: Um,
3: what's it like watching him play or watching him doing what he's doing now? I mean, at first watching him out on that football field was a little bit of a, a surreal um, thing to, you know, when you, when you first go out there and your kid's been playing football since he was peewee and um, you know, the equipment doesn't really fit and the knee pads are really covering the shin pad. Um, you know, it's, kind of crazy to see him now in front of 70, 80, 90,000 people playing football. That's the feeling at first. But remember, too, also that, you know, as a coach in this thing, so there's a little bit of anticipation. I mean, this is what you were working towards. And so now at this point, him playing at a high level it definitely feels good, um, but it's kind of what we're, you know, you're working towards. And, and I don't want to, you know... I don't wanna come off conceited or whatever, um, but it's just what you expected. You know, you, you you expected him to get to this point and you're happy that he's arrived to that. So it might be different for other parents, but you know, you know the steps that were put in place and you kinda of plan for this day to come. So it's good to see it here.
2: What is it like if you're to turn on ESPN or go to a message board or just in general, hear someone criticize uh, your child, or uh, if you're friends with some of the parents in the team, to hear them criticize their child about their performance on the field, or whatever the case may be, is that a difficult thing to have to endure?
3: Um, well, at this point for him, it's you know in high school I had to deal with it, um, and you know you had you had people on Twitter, um, which is the place where most most of the criticism gets thrown down. You know, like Twitter's a little. Um, little ghetto social, social network uh, where you can go in there with an egg pick or whatever or a picture of a truck and, and you know, criticize someone and, and not be held accountable. So in his high school years, um, had to deal with a lot of that. Had to deal with a lot of that coming from Miami fans when, you know, Quincy got critical of Miami during the whole recruiting process. So they were on him, hot and heavy, and you just kind of grow thick skin to it. So at this point now, I'm a vet <laughs> when it comes to you know, both he and, and my other son, Marco, being criticized, so it's, you know, no sweat off my back. I mean, Tennessee fans are six weeks in to, to Quincy right now, and they won't stop. It doesn't matter what who else they're playing. They're still asking about ducks and trucks, and um, they lose to South Carolina, and they're still trying to find him, so I'm like, you guys gotta, there's gotta be other things going on in your life. I mean, there's gotta be a truck in the driveway that you can go wash or something, but you can't spend your whole life revolving it around this, you know, this young 20 year old, but it is what it is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it now at this point.
4: All right. Give me your honest answer here. Who was better coming out of high school? You or Quincy or Marco? Uh,
3: not an easy question. So um, I don't know if I'm going to give you the best answer here possible. I had an unbelievable senior year of high school. Um, and at my high school, I played both ways. I returned kicks, and I did all that stuff. I rushed for – I was, you know, split time with another running back, so I rushed for 750 yards or somewhere around that. Um, I had, you know, interceptions and ran them back for touchdowns and fumbles. I had a really great senior year. ran back kickoffs. They wouldn't kick the ball to me anymore. So from that standpoint, just breaking down a senior year, I probably had the best out of all of them. Um Quincy didn't play both ways. We are at a school, university school, where we had some pretty good depth, and if you played offense, you played offense, and if you played defense, you played defense. And, you know, he had a pretty great senior year, a couple of pick sixes, a 100-yard interception return, which is the record at the school. So he had a pretty good senior year. But when you factor in that I played both ways, I had the better senior year. And then Marco right now, he's at a school where it's, you know, offense, you play offense, defense, you play defense. And his is a little different. Um, he's been so good in coverage that um, he's not getting much action either, you know, either way. I mean, it's it's him on one side and Patrick Sertan Jr. on the other side. So those two guys really are just left alone most of the game. So he doesn't really have a chance for a whole lot of action. Um, And, you know, teams, we have a really good defense at American Heritage. So they're trying to find any way that they can to attack us. And, you know, one of those ways is really not going after, you know, Marco or Pat on the outside, so um, it's kind of like the Florida Gators defense. You know, um, you don't really, you don't really want to go after Quincy and and, and Jalen Tabor. So now they're trying Duke, and that's that's turning out to be a problem, also. So um, in this household, man, senior. I mean, Dad had the best senior year, and there's nothing they could do about that.
2: <laughs> I love it. So looking at the upside, <laughs> who has the higher upside? if you had to bank on it right now, Marco or Quincy?
3: Um, Also another tough question, because I'm going to tell you how they're different. Quincy, obviously big and fat. Um, The size thing really, really works for him. Um, Marco, on the other hand, not Quincy's size in terms of thickness, but, you know, I I have a feeling that when all is said and done, he may end up being taller than Quincy, but super athletic. Um, You know, he's a guy that does the backflips, the triple backflips. Uh, matter of fact, he got he became really really famous off of a backflip catch. I don't know if you guys ever
4: saw it, but I've it went it. viral. And, impressive.
3: Yeah, so that's just a glimpse into his um, athleticism. So he can do those kind of things. Quincy dare not try any kind of a backflip.
4: Well, let me ask you. But, um, yes, let me jump in ahead. and ask you like about UF itself and why that was attractive place for Quincy and now Marco as well.
3: Um, we did our due diligence when Quincy was coming out and, and taking trips and, um, I was more into the taking unofficial visits because it, you know, it's a more realistic picture than when you go on the official visit and stay in a hotel, or, uh, or eat at a restaurant you, you're never going to go to when you're at the school. So I got a chance to observe the coaching staff, um, in the various camps, you know, their coaching style and so on and so forth. So we went to a number of schools and after... Going to all the schools, um, it just everything just seemed right at Florida. and It's hard to put a finger on it. It just seemed like uh, he would be well taken care of there, um, and not only just the football stuff, but academically as well. You know, he's a guy that likes to use tutors. Um, you know, plenty in that area for him, and it would be well taken care of there. Even down to something as simple as if he got. Uh, a common cold, you know, University of Florida has their own, you know, general doctor for the football team. So, you know, as a parent, just those little minor things that would keep you awake at night um, seem to be taken care of there. So um, the depth chart was friendly. You had um, Marcus Roberson and Luches Purifoy leaving that year, really only what you only had behind him. Uh, was Vernon Hargrave, who was playing some as a freshman, and nothing really solid after that. You know, Brian Poole was playing some. So the depth chart was friendly for Quincy coming in. And then, you know, the, a big part of it, too, was that he would be getting good coaching, which was important because, you know, I was his coach as he was going through the ranks. And so it was important that he continue to get good coaching. And um, Javaris Robinson, obviously a, a great coach as well as a good recruiter. I knew he would learn the game. And so that was the reason I think ultimately all those reasons combined is why, you know, Quincy chose Florida. And then as it comes around now for Marco, um, all those things still in play, um, even though the staff has changed, still all those other things were a factor. And then on top of that, you've got another friendly depth chart situation. Um, And so, you know, Marco has a chance to go in and compete. And if he's on his game, you know, get some early playing time and, and then go on from there. So, um, you know, it's kind of what happened there.
2: What do you think of the perception that younger players or the ones coming out of high school now prefer Miami and Florida state to Florida?
3: Um, I don't know where, where that would come from. I'm, I'm not really getting that sense. Um, as I think about it in recruiting, um, you know, I know Florida state has, had a great amount of success in recent years. I see it declining, though. I think we all are seeing that. Um, but, you know, that might be a factor for it. Um, the party nature of, uh, of Tallahassee and Florida State, uh, perhaps that's eye-catching. Um, but I think it's just residuals off of winning a national championship for Florida State. Um, the Miami thing, I'm not getting a sense of. Uh, and if that is the case, the only theory I could think of there maybe is um, brand new coach and Mark Richt, um, a former Canes, and it's something brand new. But other than that, I'm not really getting that sense. For me, when I look at Florida, you're talking about the only school in the state of Florida from the number one conference in the country. You know, um, the SEC is the number one conference, and it's in the state of Florida. Um, you know, a hotbed for recruiting. That alone makes should make it super attractive to – um, any any high school senior trying to come out and play football at the next level.
4: Let me ask you about this year's Florida Gators team. I'm assuming you follow it pretty closely. What is your opinion of oh, yeah. uh, Coach McElwain and the offense? Like, if you were going to diagnose how to fix the offense, what would you say?
3: Uh, well, I do know this. You know, Coach McElwain took a job at Colorado State, and it seems that he kind of walked into you know this same kind of situation um the were some quarterbacks there um I know in his first cycle didn't really have enough time here at Florida to go out and get the guy he he wants um made a run at Lamar Jackson that would have been sweet huh um DeAndre Francois made a run at him but certainly not enough time when it comes to quarterback to build a relationship and land either one of those guys so He had to wait till the next cycle to kind of get what he wants at that position. In the meantime, he's had to make use of what's available to him at at that quarterback position, and I think he's doing the best that he can with that. Um, But I think if not next year, the year after that, he's going to have a guy that he's scouted, recruited, build a relationship with, and that a guy that fits what it is he likes to do. And I think at that point you can really judge him Um, And right now he's just working with um, a lot of guys and a mentality that existed prior to him getting there. I mean, Florida had been bad offensively uh, prior to him getting there. So um, you still got to deal with a mentality there of uh, guys that just didn't, weren't in high production mode. So I'm willing to give him, um, in my mind, the opportunity to, to turn it around and get it to where, you know, he wants it to be get it to what he was doing at colorado state obviously very good offensively there and so i think the fan base needs to have patience you can be upset at time to time to time from the kind of games like what we saw saturday i mean that upset me just the team just didn't look prepared and mind you that was all three units in my mind um but i you know i know the kind of You know, society we live in now, they want things fast. They want it in a hurry. They see Jim Harbaugh go to Michigan, and instantly things happen. You see uh, Urban Meyer go to Ohio State, instantly things happen. So everyone expects that to happen at their place. But each place is different. Um, They bring their own challenges. And, you know, I I think in due time, uh, when he gets the quarterback that he wants and he's able to ingrain his system um, with the guys that he really wants and recruited, I think things will look better at Florida. They have to.
2: So it sounds like you're you're hopeful and positive on the future, which is always encouraging to hear. I know here in Gainesville, it's it's more and more split these days given the six years of frustration on offense. Looking more at sure. the short term, the Gators are in a very interesting scenario with South Carolina, LSU, Florida State to finish the year. How do you think the mm-hmm. Gators are going to finish the year?
1: Um,
3: I would like to think they go out on the heels of what they just laid down in Arkansas and um, come with an A effort against South Carolina. Um, You can't let Will Muschamp come into this stadium on Saturday and knock you out of the SEC East race. You just can't let that happen. So uh, we should get an A effort out of uh, Florida, and I think Florida's best is better than South Carolina's best. So we've got that. Now there's this matter of going to – LSU and taking on the Tigers there, which you know probably is going to be for the SEC East. I'm let's let's assume, and these days it's a tough thing to do, but let's assume Tennessee is going to beat Kentucky at home next week. Uh, then obviously it becomes super important for Florida to get that win. You know, you went through all this back and forth with LSU um, over over the Hurricane and where this game should be played. I know me as a player. I would be extremely motivated to go to Baton Rouge and punch LSU right in the face. Uh, with that being said, though, when I look at what what was done offensively against Arkansas, I, now it makes me pause. If that's what we're coming with offensively, then it's going to be tough to move the ball against LSU and find the end zone and find enough points to to get a victory. Now, Florida all in defense plays lights out then you can see a game like what you know LSU just played against Alabama. And uh, if that's the case then you know you're putting yourself in a position to win but I think Florida is going to have to get a little bit more creative offensively find a way to get the ball into the hands of their playmakers. Where's Brandon Powell in, in the offense? Why aren't we getting him to football? Get the ball into his hands. Can't all be about Callaway when you need a big play. If they can do that, you got a chance to beat LSU.
2: Chad, which quarterback would you start? Appleby, Trask, or Franks?
3: Well, you, you can't go Trask and Franks. I, I know uh, fans love to do that. They, they, they want to put the shiny new guy in there. Those guys are freshmen with zero, absolutely zero experience in a football game. To put them in a game now, and your opponents are um, you know, a very hotly contested and emotional game like South Carolina with a lot on the line, and then expect them to go to Baton Rouge against LSU and not look like a freshman, and then you're going to put them in the big rivalry game against Florida State, you're asking for failure. And, you know, on top of that, you may mess with the psyche of those guys. So they can't play um, in these games unless they're forced into duty because the other two guys are gone. Um, Quite frankly, I think if you committed to Luke Del Rio, play Luke Del Rio. But try to get the guy to understand that let's start taking what – is given to us. You're rolling out and Goolsby wide open in the flat on third and three, throwing the damn ball in Stop looking downfield for the big play. You need first downs. You got to keep the ball moving. And really what it just boils down to for Florida on offense is find ways to get 10 yards. Find ways to get first downs uh, and, and, and understand that you got a really good defense and sometimes you need to just play field position. And when the opportunity presents itself to take shots down the field, take them, but find a way to get 10 yards And, and, uh, you know, not take such big risks when you're in your own territory. I didn't really care for that first play call of the game. Five wide. I mean, stop putting the game into Luke Del Rio's hands. Effectively, he's uh, uh, just about a freshman. He's not been a starter anywhere. Yeah, he played in some games. He might have started a few. But he's a freshman, basically, out there. So stop putting the game in his hands. Run the football. Get some balance. Don't ask him to. Don't put the game in his shoulders and let the defense, you know, set you up with good field position and score that way. Now you got a monster kicker too. Use that also to your advantage.
4: Well, Chad, we appreciate your candor and your uh, honest answers to all our questions. Uh really appreciate you being on the podcast today, James. Let's start with one of your favorite segments, the SEC Roundup, and let's begin with the real shocker of the day: number four in the CFP rankings, Texas A&M goes down to the Fighting Dan Mullins, 35-28. We have made fun of Mississippi State every week,
2: practically, this year, for either a losing or almost losing to a out-of-conference scrub opponent. I don't even know if anybody was tuning into that game for a while. There was a bad slate on Saturday, but truly shocking result. And Dan Mullen apparently, is finding ways to get it done, even when his team is horrible. And AM and someone and Sumlin are finding ways to just... Just, I don't know, blow it. Like, that. that's a really shocking result. It is a
4: shocking result. And this goes to show you college football is unpredictable. We talked about it in the top half. No Trevor Knight, really, for AM. He missed most of the game being hurt. But you would think that AM, if they are one of even the 10 best college teams, would be so light years ahead of Mississippi State. But hey, you go on the road in the SEC, it gets a little sketchy. So Auburn pulls out a win over Vanderbilt 23 16. If you haven't seen the end of this game, go back and watch it. The Vanderbilt star player, Zach Cunningham, leaps over, I guess, the offensive line or the, you know, kickoff, it's not kickoff, field goal unit, blocks the kick. Vanderbilt seemingly pulls Miracle out out of their butt and then throws a pick to lose at the very end. That was a crazy game. Yeah, great showing by Vanderbilt, though. Derek Mason, one of the guys we said on the hot seat,
2: really good football coming out of Vanderbilt right now given what's going on with them. If I'm a Vanderbilt fan, I'm pretty excited. The West has just crushed the East. That's a great result for Vandy. Competitive all the way throughout an Auburn team that just couldn't be any hotter.
4: Right, well, uh, White Sean, a.k.a. Sean White, uh, didn't play in the first half. Wasn't going to play at all. He didn't take a snap at practice during the week, so they had to you know, put him in there when they didn't want to. So that's probably why I was a little closer. Um, Missouri, 21 Finding Gamecocks, 31.
2: South Carolina is on fire,
4: and we're gonna we're about to talk
2: about it a lot more. But that's three in a row now since they've started Jake Bentley. Missouri put up a ton of yards and offense on them. It was a really close game until the fourth quarter. Missouri missed two field goals. Otherwise, it would have been even closer. But regardless, three in a row for South Carolina. They're on a roll. Tennessee waxes Tennessee Tech, 55-0. Not much to see there. Yeah, good good luck, Tennessee. No more Jalen Hurd. You know, he's he's uh, moving on to a program that will utilize him now, as we knew last week, and he confirmed this week.
4: Georgia squeaks one out against Kentucky, 27-24. This was so close. Kentucky had this game in a lot of ways. They should not have won the game, Georgia, but it's good
2: that they did for Gator fans out there that weren't so depressed and demoralized that you were still rooting for the best outcome. This was the best outcome for Florida, and so we're happy to have that one, but uh, tough loss for Kentucky.
4: Yeah, they, they had some dreams crushed right there, I think. And then the big one, number one, Alabama, 10 Number 13, LSU, zero. We said on the pod
2: that the game plan would be for LSU not to turn the ball over and give Alabama free points. And hats off to them. They did not do it. Unfortunately for them, they also just do not have an offense that's capable of moving the ball against Bama's defense. But, but I thought this game really illustrated what you and I have been saying about Alabama all year long. And smoke and mirrors was too strong of a word when we first used it because this team is obviously very good. All they've done is go beat team after team after team on the road, in night games, whatever. Uh, But they're they're still kind of weird to me because they just cannot pass the football at all. But they keep finding ways to win. And in college football, that's the most important thing, is to find ways to win, especially on the road against quality opponents. And they are taking
4: everyone's best shot, and they are winning. It is most impressive. I mean, LSU at night is really tough. They were so keyed up for this game and they had a great defensive game plan. They were shooting the edges. I mean, Gary Janderson talked about this nonstop during the broadcast, but did a good job of containing the run game for Alabama, at least the QB runs through most of the game. And that's what eventually did them in when they couldn't do that anymore. But it looked like they could have played this game for 10 years and LSU have never scored. I mean, which I assumed, you know, or Bama coming off a bye week. Nick Saban probably took one look at that offense was like, you know, we could play our third stringers and limit these guys. I mean, just a nightmare, again, for Leonard Fournette. He's averaging a little over one yard a carry, I think, something like that. So, rough day for the Bayou Bengals. And if you were thinking Ed Orgeron was your man to coach this team, you might want to think again. I don't know. They, <laughs> I don't think he provides the kind of coaching acumen that you need to win at that level.
2: Yeah, good game plan, I thought, from LSU. They didn't really have anything else they could do, I think, given who they have. I don't know. Could you be more creative on offense? Sure, but really difficult when those are the pieces you have as a less-miles team, as you're a power-running team. It's hard to do anything different. So they kept it close as long as they could. A funky bounce, a funky turnover could have let them win it. But regardless, Bama rolls on, and and now they face what looked like it was going to be a really easy game. With regards to Auburn, uh, a month and a half ago, and we called it the buyout bowl. And if if the Mad Hatter is still had to deal with the devil, they would have scored that touchdown at the end, and maybe Malzahn wouldn't be here, and maybe no. Auburn
4: wouldn't be this good. So college football truly is crazy. It's why we why we love it. So a couple quick national games we talked about. I mean, Ohio State had a huge spread against Nebraska, and we kind of laughed at that because they've been playing so close, and then they just obliterated Nebraska. And FSU pulling it out against NC State. I I guess I won that bet because I took the points there, but, I mean, I NC State should have had that game. That had to have been heartbreaking for them. Oh, NC
2: State, that they should have beaten Clemson, and they should have beaten Florida State. They they should be 6-2. and two. Crazy. They're a good football team, and just cannot get it done right there at the end, so unfortunate for them. Well, let's turn our attention to this week. James, give us a little primer on South Carolina. So, I'm sure, like most of you, you thought this game was a foregone conclusion, and that we were going to just whack South Carolina.
4: Yeah, the beginning of the year, this was we talked about Arkansas being the game we were most likely to lose, maybe. And of the conference games, this felt like most likely to win. And you would have
2: essentially been right if you look at their overall season stats. In fact, if you look up the matchup stats, looking at the total season, we are better than South Carolina in virtually every single possible regard. Like, almost everyone is arrow pointing towards Florida. But that can be misleading, because football teams, as you know from my own personal bias, normally revolve significantly around the person playing the quarterback position. Well, in the past three games, they've had a guy named Jake Bentley, and not surprisingly, their statistics are vastly different than they were before. In fact, they spent the first half of their season scoring fewer than 20 points in six games, every single game, did not eclipse 20 one time. They start true freshman Jake Bentley, they are now averaging 28 points a game and have scored more than 24 points in every single game they've played. So they are an entirely different team. So you look at the overall season stats, it points to Florida dominance. We're a 12-point favorite. Vegas seems to think that's the case. If you look at the past three games, which South Carolina has played Tennessee and Missouri, so they played some SEC competition, including playing UMass, which is a at a conference opponent, their, their stats are much better than ours. So do you believe in the short-term trend or do you believe in the overall season? And that's kind of what this game narrative is about. If you look at the numbers in totality, South Carolina has the 118th ranked offense. They've got a top 20 ranked defense, uh, roughly. These are averages I'm using on my own accord here. They're terrible at rushing at 116. Their rushing defense is bad at number 90. Their passing offense is pretty bad at 80. And their passing defense is good in the top 20. So kind of a similar team to what we keep seeing in the SEC. There's like teams that can't stop the run, but teams are pretty good against the pass, and their offense looks bad. But that those stats are super misleading because their offense has been entirely different in the past three weeks. And, in fact, they're scoring 92% in the red zone in the past three weeks, which would be top five in the NCAA. That's impressive. Night and day, night and day. Meanwhile, UF has continued to regress. Our offense has gone from 50th just three weeks ago to 80th now. Um, our defense has slid back just a little bit, but still still top five in most categories. So this, this game is a truly, what do you believe about momentum in the short term versus overall season statistics and player recruiting personnel? Because Florida has better talent, quote unquote, on the roster, but South Carolina is hot and we are not. So this one, maybe more than any game we've done this whole season, aside from even the fascinating must-champ storylines, this is a really interesting game to look at uh, with regards to what you think is going to happen. Just hard to get a grasp on on how you feel about the matchup.
4: Yeah, the statistical analysis that we usually like to look at pregame is, feels kind of worthless in some sense. I mean, defensively, it's probably the same, but momentum is a big thing. The major wild card in this game is that Luke Del Rio is not playing quarterback. He's out for this game. So let's have a little discussion about who we think should be playing quarterback. Here are the characters involved. Austin Appleby. You know, we've seen him play two games, having some success. You know, that Vander that performance against Vanderbilt maybe looking a little different in hindsight. And the two true freshman quarterback, both big time projects coming in. Felipe Franks, you know, a guy who didn't even really have an offensive coordinator or a quarterback coach when he was in high school, you know, but a lot of physical tools and Kyle Trask, who didn't play for his high school because he was sitting behind a major athlete. Uh, who went on to play at TCU. So two very untested guys and a veteran guy in Appleby. What do you see as the pros and cons here of of playing? I guess we'll we'll say Franks and Trask are basically kind of the same person profile-wise or Appleby. So this is a really difficult and fascinating question because there are so
2: many things that go into making this decision. One, and the first most important thing is you need to win the East. So if you're someone who says, Hey, winning the East this year is important, I want I want to win that division, even if it's the right for me, getting creamed by Alabama, you have to think of who's going to give you the best chance to do that. Obviously, Alan nor I have seen Trask or Frank's play. Or even practice. The practices are closed, so co- we only You hear whispers, but that's about it. And I would caution any of you from acting like either of them our God's gift to football, because the second you say something, I will say, El contrario. remember last year when everyone said Luke Del Rio was the best quarterback on the roster, way better than Will Greer, wait till this guy comes out. Nobody knows a thing. Not your favorite media guy, not your cousin or your brother-in-law or the equipment manager. Nobody knows because the practices are basically closed. Also, practice doesn't mean anything. It's all about how you play in the game. So therefore, I think the most sensible strategy is is to start Austin Appleby because you have two games with him. He won a Vanderbilt game on the road, which obviously was completely pedestrian. He looked bad. He had a great first half against Tennessee before they shut him down, then scored a touchdown near the end. He's not inspiring, to say the least. He can make some throws. He can also panic. But the reason you start him is you have a a serious competition in practice this week. And I think what you do is you instill one of those guys as the number two. If Austin Appleby looks anything like the quarterback he was, against Vanderbilt, one of those guys gets in the game against South Carolina. That's how I would do it. I don't know if how McIlwain's going to, do. that is exactly how I would do it. And I would tell those quarterbacks accordingly Appleby, don't look over your shoulder. You're going to be the guy for this game, but we have to win the SEC East. If I think I see several drives of trend where I'm just not inspired, I'm going to have to make this change. I'm going to have to try to win the SEC East. Now, the thing we need to talk about is burning red shirts, which is the main question. If you play one of these guys, you burn a red shirt, potentially. Depends how many plays he plays, how that works, but that then could set him back or you back as a program because having both of these guys redshirted gives you the best long-term flexibility. So you've got a tug-of-war between the immediate
4: and the long-term. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because if, let's say the Gators had two more losses this year, you just don't even think about it. You pick which one of the freshmen you think is the best and you play them and give them a chance to really show what they can do. But you're right, this team has, still has a ton to play for, and this is a winnable game. Uh, and it's not, I mean, it's a tough game, but it's not like Alabama's coming to town or something like that where you're like, just don't damage the freshman by putting him out there into the meat grinder. So it all signs, to me, point to Austin Appleby playing. And you know what? He's shown that he can do good things. Like, he made some brilliant throws against Tennessee. And yeah, I, I, you got to be hopeful that you can run the ball. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it seems like he should be playing now. If you're like, you know, that these guys are relatively equal with Appleby at this point, then maybe you play them, and you're like, it gives us just as good a chance to win. You go. That's usually the general rule. You go with the younger guy, but since these guys are redshirted, I would be loath to play them unless absolutely necessary at this point in the season because of the lack of flexibility it gives you moving forward. So with that said, are you expecting to see Appleby play the game and maybe play the whole game?
2: I do expect that. I think that's the right decision. Now, I want to make sure I address what I know half of you are thinking. But James, 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 you're raving about Jake Bentley, and you're talking about how great South Carolina is now with Jake Bentley and how he's an up-and-coming rising star. And he's a freshman, he's a freshman, he's a freshman. I understand this, but South Carolina started him after their season was essentially over. They had nothing to lose. And now, thanks to the horrific nature of the SEC East, they're back in it mathematically, which is just a joke about the division. But it's not that you're going to ruin a freshman by starting with a freshman, but the red shirt is so, so, so important to building your future. That's what you're talking about here. And true freshmen playing in games that matter against a good defensive mind, that's a serious task. That's a hard task. This is not high school football it doesn't mean they couldn't be really good. And look, let's between, between all of us, if it was strictly about entertainment, absolutely, I would put in Trask or Felipe Franks. If we're thinking about Alan and I and your entertainment on Saturdays, put one of them in. It's something you haven't seen before. It's way more fun to watch. All of those things are true. But you probably increase the percentage chance you lose the game. And that's why I like the strategy of give your veteran guy a chance to get out there, make some things happen, give the team some belief. If he does not do that, and there is no spark, or the team is flat, then you, I think you have to insert one of those guys because that will immediately jumpstart the battery. The crowd will get energized. The team will get energized until he makes a horrible decision, throws a pick six, ruins the game, or does something really good and then becomes the guy. So I think that has to be your methodology. I would hate to see us roll Appleby out there for an entire game of complete and utter mediocrity where it's like a back and forth struggle and it's like seven to seven or something really bad. I don't want to see that. I would hate to see that. I wouldn't do it that way.
4: Yeah, because you're hopeful, like if he's playing that poorly, then you're probably not going to beat the next level of competition, which would be an LSU or Florida State. So, yeah, I mean, I think like you said, it's it is a spark to the team. I think just playing anybody differently than Del Rio this week would have helped the team have some hope, have some focus moving forward. But neither of these guys are the prototype of like, you know, Alabama's Jalen Hurts who is mostly a runner and can get by on just his physical skills. These guys would have to be operating the offense, which is not an easy thing to do. So I, I don't expect to see them out there. I'm I'm actually ho- hoping that we won't see them because that means Applebee is playing well and we're winning the game and we're executing our offense at least to a, I don't know, passing degree. So who knows what we'll see. That's kind of the intriguing part of this game, but I'm hoping that we won't see either of the freshmen. Well, and in a nutshell...
2: And again, there's so many ways this conversation can go. The best thing that can happen for Florida is that Appleby plays the rest of the season, we win the SEC East, check the box on this season, go into next year, and now it's time for one of those guys, Trask or Franks, to emerge. Another important thing to note here is Jake Bentley is light years ahead of both Trask and Franks because he played a ton in high school. His dad was a football coach for years, and he wasn't a project. Trask and Franks were both projects. Now, you can question why McIlwain recruited both projects. Well, I think because he thought Luke would be much better than he wound up being. But the hand that we're dealt right now is not a simple thing. So you've got to make sure you think through the logic of your quarterback decision in this. Hopefully, what we see on Saturday will inspire some hope. But like we said, I would not have a super long leash on Appleby. I'd be more quick to change. Now, the problem this team faces this weekend is bigger than just the quarterback. We've got a serious, serious injury problem. Let's look at what we have and what's been dealt in this past weekend and how we're going to be playing essentially with an arm or two tied behind our back. Both of our leading tacklers could be out. Anzalone's out with a broken arm for the rest of the season. So that was my breakout player of the year. It was in the midst of a really good season. Just gets whacked on that replay. You could see straight in his forearm. Gone. Out. Surgery. He's down. Davis is... Quote highly questionable, according to I don't know if he should play the
4: way he looked in that game. He was extremely limited, and there's sometimes he's hobbling around, not like you said, not making those kind of plays where, were somewhat routine for him because of his athleticism. So I don't know if I want him out there. That's an interesting thing. Okay, keep going. Yeah, agreed. I think that that would be the right
2: thing. Is that there were lots of plays they got probably because he was out there, but he is the leader. He lines up people correctly. You could make a case for that. Our starting center Cam Dillard out for the rest of the season with a knee injury. Uh, that one, in my opinion, of course, we've talked about this, may or may not affect us as greatly. You immediately throw Tyler Jordan in there, and then you're able to shuffle it around. It's it's probably okay. Probably not crazy. Luke Del Rio being out, I think both of us probably think is a good thing. I think that we needed to make a change anyway. If we were here and he wasn't hurt, we'd be calling for that change. But then you got some other ones that matter too. C.C. Jefferson is highly questionable uh cleveland who had been having a nice season especially in the second receiver sets with callaway it's highly questionable thompson who got obliterated on one of the hardest hits i've seen all year is questionable Uh, you just and then mark mark herndon is
4: out he's out for the rest of the season too so some key injuries here to deal with that's some of our top line talent too with cc jefferson and tiger cleveland that that puts us ahead of south carolina in some of these categories is that we are the more talented team technically. And so you take some of that top line talent away and it starts to level the playing field, which I don't like. So hopefully we'll, I'm hopeful that CC will be able to play Cleveland. Uh, I'm not expecting him to, although you never know with the way this team handles injury updates. So, but tough lose. Okay. So this is what we talked about. With the linebackers, right? and Davis, maybe one of the best combos of linebackers in the country. They've been playing extremely well. No depth behind them. So we're going to see some younger guys. We're going to see David Reese, true freshman. We're going to see Voshan Joseph, true freshman. Daniel Millen, senior, a a, a guy. He's fine. He'll give you some good snaps. Um, And Kylan Johnson, who's a redshirt freshman, who's played some but not a ton. So a lot riding on those guys who haven't seen very much time on the field. That's going to be a a challenge for them to play in a way that will allow this team to be successful. And in his press conference, Coach McElwain mentioned just general changes that might be made. Are there other changes that you would either they should make or you'd like to see them make? That feels like coach speak to me. It's like when Urban or Ron
2: Zook or any other coach talks about, we're going to go, we're just going to look at everything. Every position is open and the fans get all excited. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to look at everything. At this point in time, you already know who your better players are. And so if you're doing your job in practice, there shouldn't be an unknown. Uh, there is something to be said about letting players play that haven't had a chance to play with the lights on yet. Um, I just don't know why I look at our roster and see those opportunities. Aside from on the offensive line, which now is going to have to have happen. Other than that, though, I can't. I don't. I don't know what that would mean. Like we didn't lose the Arkansas game because of changes outside of the quarterback spot. So I'm not sure what that means. Maybe that
4: schematically, maybe personnel wise. I don't know. I, I personally agree with you. I don't think we're going to see a ton of changes. And speaking of personnel, let's talk about some matchups that we like or don't like. And when we look at the Gators and the Gamecocks, what are what is one or two groups that you like that favors the Gators? I watched a lot
2: of film on Jake Bentley and and I think of defensively, I think we should be able to stop their running game. Their rushing attack is is not super strong. It's Kurt Roper. It's a shotgun-based formation almost every single play. It's a lot of zone read type stuff. We've been really successful at that this year. And he's not a runner. No, no. And not, not not Jake Bentley running, just their running game in general. I don't. They shouldn't be able to run on us. This is not an Arkansas team that's going to overpower you. So I like that matchup. I like our run defense, except we're missing our two leading tacklers and both linebackers. So now I wonder about that. I look at the back end of the pass, and I say I have to like our corners against... South Carolina, but I look at Jake Bentley and say one of his best traits is throwing the ball in the pocket under duress. Really strong arm, throws good, good balls. I like that matchup. I'll take corners against anyone, but that's not like a super plus matchup right now. And then on the offensive side of the ball, I don't like our matchup at all. We, mm-hmm. we can't run the ball on seemingly anyone. And no matter who's in, I mean, Appleby doesn't inspire me he's done some okay things. His numbers are all right. I'm not like, Ooh, yeah, Applebee's going to go shred somebody. So I actually have a hard time as weird as this may sound. And it sounds weird for me to say it right now, finding a matchup that I really like against the South Carolina Gamecocks, which is
4: frustrating to even like say that out loud. Yeah. Missing our premier linebackers really puts a dent. And I think what we would want to do, I think we're going to have to be a little more vanilla in our coverages because those guys don't, exactly know what's happening. Now, maybe Daniel, man plays a ton of snaps and he knows what he's doing and we're okay. But yeah, I do not feel good about anything on offense or defense that I would circle and say, like, this is a major win for us. Now, also on the other side of that, I, I don't circle anything and say we're at a major loss here either. Weirdly, it feels kind of flat and maybe we'll get to the game and say, okay, our offensive line played well. Their defensive line was not capable of stopping us running the ball. I don't feel good about saying that at all. And I would like to think freshman quarterback, throw us the ball a couple times, but Jacob Eason didn't do that. So I I don't know. This feels like a really close game when I look at the matchups if we play anywhere close to the way we played against Arkansas.
2: Yeah, Jake Bentley right now has a 73% completion rate, six touchdowns, no picks. 73% is insane, by the way. Everyone knows how much I like Will Greer, and he was at 675 and our defense is, is, is much better than Missouri's, obviously, and UMass and stuff like that. So. Correct, but still did it against Tennessee as a true freshman at home, led them to a win, which is impressive, something we couldn't do. Um, fascinating game to watch Jake Bentley play. From the film that I've watched, he's easily the best quarterback we've faced again, and that includes Eason. Interesting. Uh, part of that is because South Carolina's got something much better going on offense. The receivers are much better than than Georgia's, but really impressive on film right now, and also indicative of how bad the quarterbacks are in the SEC East. But regardless, this is going to be a big challenge for our our defense. I think that, that right now you can make an argument that Jake Bentley is better than than Austin Allen, who we just faced, um, which maybe seems crazy, but but he's doing really good things there. So when I think of the keys to the victory in this game, I'm having a hard time isolating any one thing because right now the momentum just feels so backwards in my mind that I can't find a spot that says, here's what we have to do. But I can tell you that we're going to have to stop Jake Bentley. Their success is not through a high volume of passing. It's through big plays at really critical times. And if we can stop those, South Carolina's offense would, would still be rather average. But they have been on fire at hitting important plays at important times with their passing game. And that's what's made them dangerous. That's the key to the victory in this game for me. We cannot allow 15-yard-plus plays from the arm of Jake Bentley. And if we do, we could be in trouble.
4: That's really astute there. Watching them play, yeah, it's not like they're just lighting it up down the field. Uh, You know, I think they do want to limit his exposure. They don't want him throwing the ball 45 times, even though that is their strength. So if we can get off the field on third down, you know, get them into bad down and distance, and then make a play on the ball— I think this game could turn into a blowout if we're able to do that. But this guy this guy has a lot of moxie. He's got a good arm. So it's going to be a challenge. Like I said, I think they are if they're good enough schematically to put our linebackers in danger, it could be a long day for us. Now, they might not be able to do that. We might be able to respond on defense and hide them a little bit. We'll have to see. Uh, offense feels stupid to say this every week. But if we don't run the ball, we're going to get just bottled up because I don't think Appleby will be able to just shred them. They have a decent secondary and yeah, I don't know. I'm fearful of watching us get one or two yards of carry every time we have been able to run the ball at points during this season. So I don't know. Muschamp is an excellent defensive corner. He's going to look at what we do. And I think he's going to realize the places that he can stop us. Now I think we can have success. It's not a lost cause, but I don't know. It, it's, feels dumb to say it's as simplistic as running the ball, but we have to run the ball. We do. And one as I was just
2: hearing you talk about that, I'm thinking in my mind of what is Muschamp going to do to stop us, What what I do to stop us. And, and Arkansas used a lot of cover one and a lot of man, but that's against Luke Del Rio. Muschamp is a smart defensive coordinator. I, I think he's going to use a lot of zone against Appleby. And that scares me because Appleby's a much better man passer because his arm is really strong. And I think his post-snap reading skills are really poor from what we've seen Muschamp's a really good zone defensive coordinator. He can frequently drop eight from a wide variety of looks. And I see a scenario where if we're not running the ball, I don't know that Appleby's going to throw the ball in the teeth of an eight-man drop. And that, that also concerns me. So all you're hearing is, wow, James sounds really concerned. I am concerned that we could lose to Muschamp this weekend, which would which, which in my opinion makes this the biggest game in McIlwain's tenure as a Gator coach. This is the biggest game this week. If he loses this game... The sky maybe hasn't
4: fallen on him, but it will be pretty darn close. That There'll be a lot of noise in the system. And I it was hard, you know, two weeks ago, it was hard for me to imagine him having any kind of heat on him coming into next year. But this is, I don't know. I don't want to overreact either way to one game and you're playing with your backup quarterback and a ton of injuries against a resurgent Gamecock team. So, but... Regardless of whether it should or shouldn't, the heat will turn up on him. Okay, a couple storylines. Must champs revenge. I think this team is going to be motivated. We are dedicating the field to Steve Spurrier, which is an interesting move by our athletic department. It is a noon game. Those are tough uh, to have a ton of momentum in. And we don't carry a lot of momentum anyway. Either of those three factors kind of stand out to you as significant.
2: All of them stand out as significant. And I'm just depressed at our home schedule this year and yet another noon game. And the fact that we lost to Arkansas. So there will be no energy and momentum in that stadium on Saturday. And if you wanted to make the best argument for creating a bunch of energy in the stadium, it would be to start a freshman. But we can't even really do that without significant costs. So it seems like everything we do has a really huge cost on the other side of it. Which is just just a feeling of bluh right now. Whereas South Carolina, it feels great. They have nothing to lose. They're playing loose and free. They're hyped. They're on
4: the upswing. Everyone's hyped. It just like it just feels like two trains moving in completely opposite directions. And we could leave next week, you know, feeling really good about the Skater team that they pulled out a tough win. Or man, spiraling towards the end of November with looming games against LSU and FSU. Okay, let's do prediction time. Give me your score.
2: I cannot believe I'm about to say this on this podcast, but I'm going to predict South Carolina to win this game. And that's primarily because I am a huge believer in momentum in football and trends when it comes to how teams are playing and the fact that we have lost some of our best matchup items with our linebackers. Film doesn't look good. I don't love it. I don't love where we're at. The quarterback play will change all that for Florida. If we get good quarterback play, we will win this game. I'm just not sure we're going to get it. So I think South Carolina is going to beat us 20-13 to 13, um, in a slog fest in an ugly, uninspiring game that may have a lot of people calling for, for McIlwain's head. I just can't imagine a worse result for him than in year two of his tenure, losing to a really bad South Carolina team last year that doesn't have a ton more talent on it this year. That would be a bad result. I really hope I'm wrong, but I think South Carolina takes a 2013.
4: Well, I think that's the thought that they're really bad, but I don't think they are really bad the way they've been playing, and It's unfortunate that there's so much pressure on this team right now, but I'm going to predict a Gators win. I think they do just enough. I'm going to say 20 to 14 Florida. So either way, it's going to be really close in our minds. Um, And yeah, I'm, I don't feel good about predicting this game. Either way, I thought about picking South Carolina. That didn't feel good. I thought about picking the Gators. That didn't feel good. So it's, it's really intriguing from that perspective because we have no idea what's going to happen on Saturday And we'll be in the Swamp to check it out. Joining the show right now is Todd Ellis. He is the voice of the Gamecocks.
2: He is also a legendary quarterback, the winningest quarterback in South Carolina history, as well as a significant record holder. Todd, thanks for joining us.
1: James, Allen, good to be with you guys. It's uh, one of my favorite times of year, late uh, October, early November. Uh, I love this time of year in Southeastern Conference football. It's good to be with you.
4: So the narrative seems to have flipped around the South Carolina program over the last couple of weeks. You know, I think there's a lot of criticism of the Muschamp hire. I know nationally people were rather skeptical, but it seems like things have started to turn. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? Uh,
1: the, the, the part of it I agree with is that there was some national talk that that was not a good hire. Um, I just think that that for Coach Muschamp, uh, that hire, the timing of it, and the fact that Coach Burrier had – resigned or um, given up his position, how he liked to phrase it all the time, um, at midseason, but yet the Gamecocks were one of the later ones to hire somebody, had the appearance there that Raby Ray Tanner, the director of athletics, had missed on the guy, and I think that was unfair. I think it was easy. I think there was it was easy for the national pundits to pick out one or two of these hires and say, I'm not sure that's a good fit. But there's a reason when you're, when you're 44 years old and you have been offered three of the biggest jobs in any Power Five conference uh, schools in Texas, Florida, South Carolina, you're doing something right. I mean, all those guys and folks who interview and look at and talk about football coaches and players, for goodness sakes, who, who go to schools have had something to say about them. So I agree with you on the fact that there was a, there was some national talk. I thought that was almost kind of the cool hip thing for pundits to do was to criticize that hire. But at South Carolina, no one's really ever felt that way, mostly because, like you guys know of Coach Muschamp, man, did he hit the ground running hard in recruiting and hired a great staff, too. So he's got the second youngest staff in the Southeastern Conference, all of which are proven recruiters. And um, that, I think, settled some of that, hey, did we, is this right? I mean, he's very hungry as a head coach right now.
2: So I imagine the fan base is, is especially amped up with all the momentum that's been generated since Jake Bentley has come in. Is there, and I know this is spoken about in a cliche, so I'm trying to think of a way to answer it that's not a cliche, but obviously being a human, Coach Champ has a lot of memories here in Gainesville, some good, some bad. Do you think this game does mean a little something extra to him? Because I know as a Gator, if we were to lose this game, it would be a significant loss emotionally for most Gator fans. Is there anything extra for him on this game, or is it really just another (laughs) SEC game?
1: Well, um, yes, I think so. It's personal. Obviously, every step he takes when we get into Ocala with the team on Friday and every step he takes once he hits the – the field there is going to be personal, people he sees, security guards, everything else. And the memory goes back to, hey, I was let go from this job. No matter what the factors are that you believe led to that, and whether how much of that was his fault, he's the head guy. He was fired. So while I talked to him a little bit after the game against um, uh, Missouri this past week, very little, uh, and he's going to play that off, and he talked to me some. You know, pretty candidly, I think you trust me. I, I have no doubt that he's learned and has the ability to focus totally on the team, and uh, that that would not be a factor in this ball game. Now, if it was me and I was an assistant coach about Friday night in the hotel in Ocala, I would send out Coach Muschamp out of the room, and I would say to those guys, "Listen, we have all the reasons in the world." without involving your head football coach to win this ball game, You're still mathematically in it in the East. This is an East game, a team we recruit against directly. Um, but this is personal to Coach Muschamp, and this school fired him. And Coach Muschamp has given his heart and soul to you so far this season like you've given to him. Let's go out there and rip them apart today. Now that I would do that, I don't know that that's a big deal. Um, I don't know that they're going to do that, but I don't think it will come from Coach Muschamp.
4: As you've watched him this year, have you noticed any changes that he's made as a head coach that's helped them helped him this year at South Carolina?
1: Well, you guys know him probably a little bit better as a head coach. But, you know, I've watched him throughout his career as a coordinator and a head coach. I mean, I, I think one of the first things people say is that he seems to have tamed his emotions somewhat. I would argue with that. And I would also say that it was always overblown before. There's a heck of a lot of difference between how you should conduct yourself on the sideline if you're the defensive coordinator and how you should conduct yourself if you're the head coach. And I don't think it's ever gotten away from Will at, at all. Now, do I think that he could, um, as a tendency to, to get lit up and, and can get up very upset? Absolutely. I think that's a good characteristic as long as you, you, know, you can't get your team penalized. You can't do those kind of things. Stuff that you can't come back from, stuff that would turn off moms that you're going into the houses of to recruit. But uh, as long as it doesn't go that far, I don't care. But, but having said that, I don't know what the, the routine, the work that they did at Florida, and when he was working really as a coach and waiting in waiting at Texas. I don't know that. But let me, for a guy who's been around it 25 years dealing with head coaches, he, is, he has done a masterful job of managing his staff, uh, setting up what he wanted in the recruiting office. In setting up at practices, knowing exactly what he wants, um, he seems incredibly in control for someone still a fairly young head coach in that role. So I don't know about all that. Whether that's a change from what it was before, I just know I've been impressed with with that. He he really has had a clear vision. Now he admitted to me the first day I ever met him that that when I when I asked him did, did he learn something as a in the experience of Florida and 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 the answer was yes. And you take that all the time. and But I got the feeling that he's he's been pretty good knowing what formula he needed to be successful.
2: So Jake Bentley, an emerging star, maybe the best quarterback in the SEC East right now. Of course, the SEC East is not exactly a hotbed of quarterback competition. But his story is a unique one. While Alan and I are familiar with it, we were wondering if you could just give us the the, the brief story or the legend of Jake Bentley and how he should be a senior <laughs> in high school and how he's currently uh, shredding SEC defenses.
1: That's right. He is the son of Bobby Bentley. Bobby Bentley is the running back coach at South Carolina, but most importantly, Bobby Bentley is a legend. Almost every state has a couple legendary high school football coaches. Bobby, despite his pretty young age, he actually set the East Coast on fire at Burns High School in the upstate of South Carolina, in which Marcus Lattimore came from. Many top wide receivers have come from that school They dominated, winning many championships. Bobby coached there for a very long time, went to Presbyterian as a head coach of a small college in South Carolina, Uh, went back to Burns for a while, then ended up, you all probably know, he he had an analyst job at Auburn where he met Coach Muschamp at that time. Well, Jake is the third of sons that have played quarterback now at the college level, and he has a daughter they say is the best athlete. I've never seen her play, but supposed to be the best athlete in the family. Well, Jake's the biggest of those quarterbacks and uh, had been known in the East Coast and all the recruiting circles in the camps and such as being probably the top big arm pocket quarterback in a while. So he's a little bit older, and you know, he'll turn 19 in November. Um, it's not an 18-year-old, but he should be a, fr- a senior in Opelika, uh, Alabama, where he was going finishing up school. There was some talk where he would go to my son's school uh, high school here, Dutch Fork in Columbia, finished his senior year there, but they realized that he could graduate, and they graduated. I'm sure they saw an opening. I didn't I didn't ask him that, but personally, they realized it was a good chance that he could try to get in and play. But the kid is 6'3", 223, big arm. The biggest thing I've seen so far, guys, all this, I mean, there's a lot of them out there that are athletic. A lot of them can run. A lot of them can throw it in a pile, in a big crowded pocket. He, he's made some of his best throws so far. So I think he's got that that poise, that sense of um, calm that you have to have to play the position. And, and believe me, you play these three games, UMass, Tennessee, Missouri, and you're completing 73% of your passes throwing six touchdowns and no interceptions. You're doing something right. and uh, the, I'm not ready to say the legendary Jake Bentley. I know what you we're saying. You're right. In some ways, he is a legend just coming out of high school. But that those couple things I've seen. Toughness, takes the shot, pops up, doesn't fumble, and then and is really good in the pocket. Gives me great hope for the future of the position here at South Carolina.
2: So when you look at his matchup this weekend against the Gators secondary, teams have had success passing on the Gators. It typically comes when they, they dominate the time of possession. Uh, if Jake... Is successful this weekend? What kind of throws will he need to make? And if he's unsuccessful, what kind of throws will he not be making?
1: Yeah, well, he needs to be around that twenty-five attempts in total again. It, it, it will not be a good day for the Gamecocks if we've got to throw it thirty-five times. Um, we're just not built for that. Um, Florida's defensive front is; it, it, it would make us too vulnerable. He would get. We've given up some sacks. He's taken some. We need to be running the football just enough and then pretty balanced. 50-50 seems like where we're going. We struggled early against Missouri to run the ball, and he made some big throws on third down to keep drives going. But we need to be in that 50-50 range. But, yeah, I mean, he throws. He knows when to throw the 50-50 ball, let his wide receivers go up and get it. He can throw the deep ball. Um, he needs to get better, shockingly, on the wide receiver screens, which is what all the dang teams, and he did at Burns, uh that catch and throw quickly outside, he's missed a couple of those that we've had and, and maybe not put him in the best place. But other than that, I hadn't seen him not be able to make a throw in any way. And uh, But he, he doesn't need to be over about 25 attempts.
4: Do you feel like there's been improvement from the defense week to week, and are they starting to emerge? They're you know, the, a unit that could probably use an infusion of talent, but have you seen improvement from them?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, you're exactly – I mean, I. you can say all you want about Jake Bentley and the fact that we got Debo Samuel back at wide receiver and Brian Edwards on the field at one time, and that has helped a bunch. The biggest difference in the best coaching job has been this defense. There is absolutely no question. We're still one of a handful of teams that haven't given up 30 points uh, any time this year. Now, we've given up 330 yards rushing to Georgia – and uh, we've looked vulnerable against the run many times, but they're great in the red zone. The secondary, uh, T. Rob, has just done an unbelievable job with Coach Mustchamp. We look like different players, like players that weren't even in our program a year ago, like Chris Lemons, and, of course, Jamarcus King's a new player from out of junior college, the number one corner in the country. He's played lights out, but the other players as well just played so much better in a lot of it's scheme, their good timing. We're still not a great run defense team, and that, that gives me the biggest concern is that with um, Del Rio going down, Florida looking like they would probably be more conservative and try to run it a little bit more, that's certainly not the Gamecocks' strength defensively. So, uh, But, yeah, it, the best job they've done. If you just look at personnel and how many guys we've got on defense that could start on anybody else's team or the top six teams in the conference, there, there's not many on that defense that could. And so they're doing a lot with not a whole lot of explosive talent.
2: What's the most favorable matchup personnel group-wise South Carolina has against Florida this weekend?
1: Yeah, you know, that's that's a tough one. Of course, I don't know. I had not watched it that much yet, and those coaches know it a little bit more than me. But but I, but I can tell you that I think, um, first of all, the punting and kicking game is very good. I, I don't know that, that. I know there's some return guys. Some have been banged up at Florida. But you're not going to beat Elliot Fry. He's going to beat you most of the time, kicking field goals to, to win. So in a close ball game that everybody thinks would probably be under scoring under both teams under 21 points, I think Elliot Fry could be a good matchup for Carolina kicking game. And, and then I really like, you know, I like our two wide receivers out there at the same time. When you get Brian Edwards, a freshman from Conway, and sophomore Devo Samuel, we're tough for anybody. Those guys are what you want in the Southeastern Conference. They battle for those 50-50 balls. They can... Go by you. They can catch it in the crowd. They can. We're a different team with Bentley. There's no question. But we've been a really different team when they've both gotten healthy and gotten out on the field at the same time.
4: Okay, let me ask you for a prediction this weekend. How do you think the game is going to go?
1: Yeah, I really don't do that. You know, part of my contract says I can't do that, but I can give you I, I, what is it? Uh, Kirk Street always says, I'll give you a look or, or I'll give you. Yeah. Um, so, but um, I, I, I think we're talking about a game. I think it's. Both teams under 20 points, and it's probably a three-point game. Uh, obviously, Florida, I, I don't think South Carolina could get out and put it on Florida. There's, it's just not in our makeup. So even if we got 10 up, 14 up, I don't think it could get out of control. We're just not built that way. Now, Florida, you flip that and down the swamp, it could get out of hand. I, I don't see that happening. I think both these teams play fairly conservatively, struggle. It's a defensive game for for the most part, and South Carolina, thinking. When that time of possession you talked about could squeak it out. But I, I think it'll be you know very di- very difficult for Carolina to um to win this ball game. But um you know, I've seen uh, they're they're playing, you know, about as hot as anybody else and now the top two tacklers for Florida is out of the ball game. Del is out of the ball game. They're questioning themselves some. Um, we've been seen stranger things happen, but I think the Gators in the swamp on the day that they um you know uh dedicate the field to Coach Furrier. Is going to be tough
2: to be. Yeah. Speaking of dedicating the field to Coach Spurrier, do you think there's any small amount of irony there that they chose the South Carolina game to be the time they dedicate the field to him? Just i I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm not sure irony's the.
1: I'm not sure irony's the the right word I would use. I mean, I think they're being snarky. I mean, I think the administration. I, I'm not. I'm not. Wouldn't go as far to say as that's not a. Uh, classless move. I don't think that. I don't think that's that big a deal about it. But, obviously, Coach Burrier gave us our greatest years of success to turn around and dedicate it in the game in which South Carolina is coming down there, particularly after they fired our new, now head coach, Will Muschamp. I, I, I think is a little, little disrespectful, but, you know, it's some gamesmanship. I'm not telling you I'm going to lose any sleep in either Steve Spurrier or Will Muschamp, but I think it's a little surprising. I really do.
4: Well, Todd Ellis, we really appreciate your thoughts and your candor. Uh, you know, loved hearing your perspective on the Gamecocks. Thanks for coming on today.
1: Glad to do it. And for for the record, of course, Coach Fur is my man. I want him to have that field named after him. We think that is the proper thing to do. It is interesting that the staff would pick that time. That's all I meant by that.
2: Well, Todd, thanks so much. A most nice enjoyable catch.
4: interview. Let's go ahead and end this show before my cold overcomes me, and I disintegrate. James, walk us through the rest of the schedule. All right,
2: well, I had a loss for South Carolina. You had a win. And then we have, of course, the fateful LSU game. I have a loss in that game. I'm going to go crazy here and say win. That is insane. You've lost your mind due to this cold. (laughs) Florida State, I'm going to go loss. I will go loss as well. And so that's going to put your Gators in the SEC championship game. My Gators are at home, not at the title game. So do they win or lose against either
4: Alabama or Auburn? I'm going to have to go lost in that one. So that puts my Gators at 8-4 and four and your Gators at 6-5? and five?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm making a really bad face about that. Uh, but I, we said on the beginning of the show this season, I predicted nine wins. We lost a freebie win, which would have been number seven. And we said what that we were thin at certain positions. Well, the nightmare has happened, and we have regressed as an offense, which was one of my key assumptions. We wouldn't. We have lost our linebackers, which is my like number one priority on defense not to do. Which we've lost that. And so LSU is I, now a road game, not a home. And game. LSU's a road game at home, and they've proven now to at least and they could free fall. So it's big for them. Like yes. that could change. That's we're going part of early. My They could free fall. But if you're looking at it right now like I am, the logic would tell me that it's hard to build a convincing case that we're going to win these games. Ooh, well, we'll
4: have to we'll, we'll take those one at a time, but we just wanted to walk through the schedule there and quickly. Not a great prognosis
2: at this point. It hurts. It hurts. At least my Miami Dolphins have won three games in a row by some miracle. So I've got some football. Your Jags, on the other hand. Yeah,
4: How dare you mention
2: the devil uh, here I on the podcast. I know, double spiral. Uh, I want to remind you that you should hop onto Facebook and when we post the show link, see the show link and comment with who you think the starting quarterback should be this week along with your reasoning. If you want to hear it, We want to read it, we'll pick the best one and you'll win some
4: free swag from fanessentials.net. Thanks for listening everybody. We'll see you next week.
1: Let's say you just bought a house.
0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Old moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's... A burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies.